Yes, and not to take away from arts-based programming, and this is a conversation I've had with many colleagues around wanting to preserve the expertise of artists Mm -hmm. and wanting to ensure that we preserve how special the arts can be, but going to where people are. Because there's always going to be residents who absolutely want to be part of the choir. They want to do the bell ringing or they are interested in the paint nights that come in, you know, now virtually, but in the past in person. But it's all it's it's typically a relatively small proportion. So is there a way that we can offer more opportunities for creativity to more folks? Welcome to the Creatively Engaging a show where we talk to the changemakers and the storytellers, reshaping how we view aging in our communities. I'm your host, Bruce Devereaux, and my guest today is the amazingly talented Kate Dupuy. Nice to have you as a guest on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me today, Bruce. It's great. It's great. And as I was getting ready for today, I was looking uh, a little bit of your career, which is really interesting how it sort of leads to the point today in the discussion that we're going to have. And looking back, I went back to 2017 when the Sheridan Center for Elder Research and the Schlegel University of Waterloo Research Institute for Aging, the RIA is the acronym for it appointed you as the innovation leader in arts and aging. That was a three-year appointment. You were funded by the two organizations, and it was really looking at the relationship between arts and later life, specifically the role of arts in promoting health and building on individual strengths of people. So that was a three-year appointment you had at 2017, and then I looked and I saw that in... 2020, in the height and midst of of COVID year, uh, Sheridan once again and the Schlegel University of Waterloo Research Institute for Aging continued her appointment for as the innovation leader in arts and aging for five more years. Is that correct? That's right. Wow! Congratulations, and really carrying on. I guess the same theme or, or studying. Uh, participation in creating performing arts can serve to enhance the health and well-being of older adults and those who care for them. Now, you are a scientist. You are a clinical neuropsychologist, and you use quantitative and qualitative methods to explore how the participation in the creative and performing arts can serve to support the health and well-being of older adults. Now, I found this really fascinating that this is sort of the direction that you've you've taken. And most people that I've interviewed that have worked in the aging field have sort of had a defining moment where they've said, I'm going to go from this career direction to working at the aging population. And for you, uh, working not only at the aging population, but in the focus of the creative arts. What was that defining moment for you? Can you th- can you think of that moment that you had? I think there are two. So my my career title of arts and aging, I'd say the aging piece is really back actually, my goodness, almost 20 years ago now. I was an undergraduate student at Concordia University in Montreal. And a number of us in my class were given an opportunity to do a research assistant placement over the summer. And I honestly, at that point, really had no direction. I was in just in my, I think, the end of my first year undergrad and wasn't sure exactly, you know, what path I wanted to take. I knew it was, was in psychology, but I wasn't sure in which direction. And I interviewed at a number of different labs, and I was accepted to work at a cognitive aging lab. And it was a little bit like that idea of, you know, the thunderbolt, mm-hmm. that I I joined this lab, name drop a little bit, run by Karen Lee <laughs> at Concordia. And it really just felt like I had slipped into the right place for me. You know, understanding how our thinking skills change as we get older, what that means for us, not only from a lab-based perspective of how quickly we can respond to information or how well we understand things or memorize things, but what that looks like in the real world and how that impacts daily function. 
something about that just really spoke to me. And so I, it was a very lucky occurrence that I was given this opportunity. I continued to work within that space throughout undergrad. And one of the colleagues of my research mentor at the time was at the U of T. And so I decided to apply to the University of Toronto Psychology Department for graduate school, was accepted there. And really that's that was, you know, 2004, and that's the last decade and a half of my life. But in 2009, I, I was working, you know, on my PhD. You're very busy. I was very lucky because I was part of a CIHR-funded, what they called at the time a st uh, strategic training program. So they were bringing together trainees and mentors, so researchers from across the country who, who were interested in a similar discipline. And our discipline was human communication and social interaction and healthy aging. And one of our mentors was a social worker who was the director and founder of the Sheridan Center for Elder Research, which is now where I work. <laughs> and at the time, you know, we would meet up yearly, we would get together at our conferences. And she had said to me, I have a, an opportunity to work as a, a sort of as a research assistant looking at a dance training program in a retirement home in Toronto, near where I was living at the time. And I've been looking for someone to, to facilitate this grant that we have. Would you be interested in taking part? You know, I know you're doing your PhD, you're very busy, but we had connected around the arts and talked about our mutual love of all things ballet for years. And so it just seemed like a natural fit. And so that was back in 2009. We then together wrote my first ever grant application that I was funded for, a CIHR Catalyst grant, to continue that work, studying the benefit of the arts for individuals living in communal dwellings like a retirement home or a long-term care home. We were successfully funded to do work not only in Ontario, but also BC. So there's a nice connection between us. And, you know, then I finished my PhD and uh, did a postdoc and heard about this this new role that was coming up at the center and the director and I were still in touch and she was still acting in some respect as a, as a mentor. And it just seemed like everything came together kind of perfectly. Mm -hmm. So how long did the dance uh, project program that you had go on for? It was about a year. Yeah. So we were funded. It was, the catalyst grants are typically about 12 months of funding. And the program itself was a 12-week, twice-weekly intervention. So one, one of the sessions was more of sort of a classical ballet style taught by one instructor from Sheridan College. And then the second would be more of sort of a tap or jazz or funk so that the residents were getting a number of different styles that they were um, made you know, comfortable with and, and open to. So currently, as the innovation leader, uh, do you have a specific focus that you're looking at regarding arts and aging? Well, the, the nice thing is the way that I've positioned my role is I'm able to actually look at the benefits of the arts for the health of older adults really in a very broad way. And the way that you, you, know, you read out the description of older adults and those who care for them, and I'd also say older adults and those who interact with them. Mm -hmm. So we have research right now that looks at intergenerational programming. So with kids as young as three to four months old, and then community-based programs that I'm working on with different community partners where we have participants who are 96 years old. So my focus is really broad, which is wonderful because it gives me a large breadth and I'm able to look at a variety of arts-based programming. So I don't really just focus on music or dance. I really look quite broadly across the spectrum. And also really quite a, quite broadly across the lifespan as well for anyone who is an older adult or sort of interacting with older adults in the arts-based space, because a lot of my work is within the retirement and long-term care home sector. And many of the care partners working there are quite young as well, sort of, you know, mid, mid thirties is typically the average age of the care partners that we work with. Mm -hmm. So you had mentioned uh, the intergenerational, that was your music across the generations program. That's right. Right. Uh, could you speak a little bit to that, what that, pro that project was about? Absolutely. So really a lot of my work and what I find really fascinating about my role is that um, it's not necessarily research that I'm creating. I'm looking to see what programs currently exist and whether I can provide a value of support for them. 
And I think that's a really important distinction because some research suggests that in the literature on the benefits of the arts for an older population, approximately 80% of the work is actually being done through external funding that a researcher brings in. So you do, as I did back in 2009, you have a little bit of money, you do a 12-week intervention of dance or singing, you say, look, people are more socially connected, their balance has improved, they're happier, and then you take the program away. And so that's not really a sustainable model. You may, of course, see the benefits for the program, you know, especially if you're using evaluative tools appropriately, it's quite likely that you will see that people improve on some aspects over the course of the intervention. But then my concern is always, okay, and then we leave. And so the thing that I love most about the work I'm doing in the intergenerational music therapy space is this was a program that was actually created at a long-term care home by two team members. So the director of recreation at the time and the music therapist had acknowledged that there really weren't a lot of intergenerational opportunities for their residents. Obviously, some residents, and this was before COVID, mm-hmm. <laughs> some residents, you know, they'll have family come in or they'll have pictures of grandkids sent to them. But there really wasn't anything more formal in terms of a weekly opportunity to interact with kids. And our music therapist had done kinder music for a long time and was very comfortable working with children and said, why don't we just try it? We'll see what happens. The first iteration, we call it the intergenerational jamboree. So the first iteration of the jamboree was mostly the children of team members of the staff, but it actually took off and sort of through word of mouth and social media, we ended up being able to run six different iterations of it within that home and had a wait list for our March 2020 program, which we were just about to launch Mm. when COVID hit. You've been very fortunate to be connected with Sheridan and Schlegel to run these programs. So obviously, you know, they, they sponsored your innovation placements. So they obviously see great value in their work. Do you find that you're able to continue the programs easier because you're connected to these centers, to these care centers? Absolutely. We're, my role, quite honestly, is so unique. There, there are a number of chairs and specialists who are all affiliated with the Schlegel UW Research Institute for Aging. And our roles provide us essentially prioritized access to the residents and the staff who live within the homes. There is still uh, an extensive formal process we need to go through in terms of presenting our research proposals to the organizations, because of course, and especially during COVID, there's always the concern of, of asking too much mm-hmm. of residents. But the Schlegel villages themselves are very open with prospective residents, letting them know, you know we have an affiliated research institute. And many of our residents, I've heard, you know, will choose the villages because they like that idea of being involved in research. It's it's exciting, right? Scientists come around and ask you questions and they want to find out things. And we're quite good at feeding information back to the villages. So there's a, a newsletter that goes out that we often will share our research findings with so that we're really, you know, finishing, closing that loop and making sure that it's not just the researchers taking from the residents, but we're also sharing back to them what we found. But it's a very, very fortunate connection. And um, the villages I've worked with have all been extremely open uh, to, to us coming in and to all the different questions we have for mm-hmm. everyone. So we're very lucky. Yeah, lucky too in the sense they have about 18, I believe, as I was looking, 18 centers in Ontario. I think we're at 19 now with a few more just recently announced by the government. So always expanding across the province. Yeah, and it was interesting, too, because seeing the work that you're doing in the creative arts with uh, olders and elders, it really seems to fit with their model of they're going more from an institutional care model to more of a social living model, which um, seems it's like a perfect fit. So now you mentioned that the people that are living within their centers um, are really excited about the idea of you coming in and doing the programs. What are some of the the barriers that you are finding, say, bringing the creative arts, quote unquote, to a population that maybe hasn't been as familiar with it throughout their lifespan? 
Well, I think even if we remove ourselves from COVID, because that's a whole other layer of barriers, but even prior to that, you know, as you're saying, there's always a certain segment of the, the population within these settings that are just more likely to be interested in the recreation programs that are available. Right. Um, you, you see that. I think that's probably sector wide. <laughs> you may see that even within your own homes in, in BC. So I think one of the things that I'm really interested in, in delving into is this idea of how do we, what terminology do we use to describe the types of activities? So absolutely, there are some people who hear the word arts and they kind of get their hackles up. You know? mm-hmm. They think, oh, that's not for me. I can't carry a tune in a bucket. I have two left feet. I'm not artistic. And so what I've tried to change the wording, at least in some of the work I'm doing, is around creativity and expression. So we did a really interesting study a few years ago at one of our homes in Hamilton, Ontario, that was just welcoming in a new group of of residents to their retirement home. And we looked through, we did sort of a retrospective analysis of uh, intake form. So this is one of the things that can be really helpful in my research is I don't ask people for more information. I look at what information have already been collected, ask for consent to, to read through those data, and then do analysis on that. So that, I think, is trying to be mindful of not asking residents of too much. Mm-hmm. So we, we retrospectively looked at over 150 of these intake forms. And it was really, as you were mentioning, the Schlegel Villages are on a culture change journey to provide a more relational, person-centered approach to care. And this questionnaire is really specifically about the resident. What are their likes, dislikes? Do they have breakfast in the morning? How do they feel safe in their home? Trying to get to know them holistically. And one of the questions was, what do people say you're good at? And if I looked at the responses, very few people indicated, I think it was about 10 to 12% of residents indicated an answer that I would sort of categorize as arts-based. So painting, dance, music. But so many people gave responses related to creativity. So a lot of crafting, knitting, crocheting, quilting, woodwork, baking, preserves. (laughs) Some of the gentlemen in particular, you know, tinkering with their cars and putting cars together. (laughs) So if you look at it through the, the lens of sort of creativity, innovation, expression, then you actually can capture a much larger group of individuals. And if you use that type of language, I think it can be more inclusive for folks. They can sort of see themselves in that. Like, okay, maybe I can't paint with oil paints, but I can make a mean apple crumble, you know, and that's how I express myself in the kitchen. I add a little bit of cayenne pepper to my recipe, which none of my friends do. How do you set yourself apart? How do you represent yourself uniquely through whatever activity it is that really is quite creative in nature? So it's really, it sounds like, you know, just changing the terminology and reframing the terminology can open up the doors for a lot more people, obviously, to be involved in the creative pursuits. Because creativity, as we know, is really about creating value, too, and and the different engagements that they're having at the time. Yes, and not to take away from arts-based programming, and this is a conversation I've had with many colleagues around wanting to preserve the expertise of artists Mm -hmm. and wanting to ensure that we preserve how special the arts can be, but going to where people are. Because there's always going to be residents who absolutely want to be part of the choir. They want to do the bell ringing or they are interested in the paint nights that come in, you know, now virtually, but in the past in person. But it's all, it's, it's typically a relatively small proportion. So is there a way that we can offer more opportunities for creativity to more folks? Because of course, it's all about trying to harness the incredible power of arts and creativity and to help people maintain their, their quality of life and their health as they age. So that would really lead in beautifully to a project that you have on the go that's coming up pretty soon in September. You have a national project that's happening September of this year called the Arts and Aging Day. For those not familiar, could could you give us a bit more of the concept of what it is, a bit of the history and details of what this this day would uh, encompass? So Arts and Aging Day Canada really came out of 
a social media post I had seen in the fall of 2019 out of the UK. And so there they have an organization called Arts in Care Homes, which is what they call, we would call long-term care, they call them care homes. And it was spearheaded by uh, a group that really was interested in not only examining how people access the arts within care homes, but in providing them with access to the arts. Mm -hmm. So it was a national day in September 2019. It was funded by organizations so that there was actually an opportunity for artists to go into homes and provide arts-based programming on the day of. And it was incredibly successful, a wonderful uptake, great chatter on social media, lots of people getting involved in things they didn't necessarily, you know, hadn't necessarily done before, didn't necessarily know they were interested in or could do. And I read about it online. And this is really, I mean, the power of social media, right, is just read about this, reached out to the organizer, Alison Teeter, said, hi, I'm from Canada. <laughs> You know, I'd love to be able to bring such a day to Canada. Would you be open to that? So that was, I think that was around November of 2019. And then I, I brought the idea to back to the RIA because I knew I would need institutional support for such a thing and presented my idea to the group there. They were absolutely on board. It fits in very well with my mandate. And we sort of took off from there. It's very grassroots. Besides my own time, we don't really have funding. We, we're not sponsored by organizations like the UK group is. It's not as though we're able at the current time to pay for artists to go in or provide programming. But, you know, we thought, well, we'll try it out. And we started to really formally plan it in January and February of 2020. And then when the pandemic hit, we really did take a step back and thought, is it appropriate for us to be doing this? And in, I guess, about June 2020, we thought, you know, this is probably a really important time for us to encourage people to participate in the arts, to be creative, because we're all socially disconnected and we're all in our own places and, you know, working from home or going to work and coming right back home because there's really, you know, not a lot for us to be doing out in the world. Maybe this is actually a great opportunity to connect people and to encourage and really promote the use of the arts for older individuals. So we we continued on with the day. We were really delighted with how it turned out last year. Because that was your first year. You basically launched your first year in the COVID year. We did. We did. And, uh, you know, I think it was a good idea because we really had no expectations of what it would look like. It's not like we had done it in person in 2019 and then launched it during the pandemic and had anything to compare it with. And we were really surprised. I think we had over 160 uh, posts on social media of different organizations or individuals who were promoting the day, showcasing what they themselves were doing or their residents or even some staff themselves. And the thing that we made a little bit different than the group in the UK is we call it Arts and Aging Day Canada. So it's really open to everyone. So it is not restricted to individuals living within a long-term care or supported living or retirement home setting. It's really open to everyone. Nice. Is it the work that they're doing for that day? Do they do it on that day or could they do it the day before and then post on that day? Is it is it flexible that way? It's absolutely very flexible. The RIA um, has recently launched our Arts and Aging Day Canada 2021 website. And with the help of a recent graduate, Candy Zhang from Sheridan College, we've created a toolkit that can really allow people to understand exactly how to get involved. So it's mostly a social media initiative. So the idea is exactly either you showcase work that people have previously done, or you do work on the day of, or maybe you don't do anything on September 24th. You just go on Facebook and look at what other people are doing, and then you're inspired after the day. So it's a very flexible experience. People can participate sort of actively or more passively if they if they want to. We had one home last year that said, you know, we really don't have any social media, Kate. Is it okay if I send you some pictures? <laughs> and I think they sent me about 30 pictures. Oh, nice. Awesome. Of their residents doing the most beautiful things. And because it was sort of early fall, there was a lot around sort of harvest time and leaves. And I had to write back and say, I'm sorry, I can't put everything online. <laughs> you know, thanks for your incredible enthusiasm. I've selected, I think I selected about eight photos that I posted. 
But it's really however people want to get involved. Um, it's an opportunity to share what you're doing, to learn from others. And really, what I'm hoping a little bit more this year is to start to build a community. Right. So building that community. So last year it was, it was strictly basically like a virtual component. Is there any way that's going to be, you see it integrated into live now that we have a bit more freedom with the vaccines and such that there'll be sort of live areas of gatherings of people? Are you looking in that down the road? I, for this year, we're not going to be doing that because we're still a little uncertain of what the fall will look like. Mm -hmm. Vaccination rates, of course, are increasing and it does seem like things are getting a bit safer. But we, again, we kind of didn't want to be caught out and then have to take anything back. So what is new this year, though, is that we've partnered with a number of different organizations and we're going to be offering virtual events that people can, quote unquote, attend on the day of. Nice. So we, we did this for one hour last year where we showcased residents living in a number of our Schlegel villages and they essentially showed off what they had created. We'll be doing that again this year, but we're also hoping to have a schedule of events that people can actually participate in. So not only actively viewing what other folks have made, but participating in dance or music. We're hoping to have a, a virtual vernissage, a walkthrough um, with our, our some colleagues at the Art Gallery of Hamilton. So we'll be updating that over the summer. And the idea then is that we'll be able to offer people an opportunity to gather virtually. Nice. I know that our Raising the Curtain team in BC is going to be doing something for the day. So we're, we're pretty excited about that too. So that'll be fun. That will be really exciting. And I think the nice thing too is because of the time differences, we'll be able to sort of catch what's happening in the UK and then also out in BC. So really we'll be giving people opportunities to participate at different times during their day, which again, hopefully will attract more people because they'll be able to pop in and out as they're comfortable. You mentioned building community. Do you see this as a tool or a, almost a platform in the future for you? Like, do you have a vision of how you would like to, to scale it that you'd like to I share? <laughs> Just wait, let me get notes. <laughs> well, I'd love for you to take notes. Yeah. I think this is, this is part of the beauty of it is right now, as I mentioned, you know, I have incredible support from the communications team, both at Sheridan College and at the Schlegel UWRIA, but we're all doing this off the side of our desks. Right. We don't have any formal funding for the day. And organizations are volunteering their time to be able to provide virtual programming opportunities for participants on the day. But again, save our, our, <laughs> our thanks and our gracious praise for them. We don't have any ability at the current time to sort of pay or support financially any of these organizations. And I do think it's important when we speak about the arts and creativity that we never negate the fact that professional artists should be financially compensated for the work that they're doing. Mm -hmm. So in my sort of large scale vision, I'm very lucky this year, I have a uh, practicum student who will be working with me starting in the fall. And so my vision for this year is to very strategically track where everyone's coming from, what type of programming or activities are showcasing, whether it's a congregate care type setting, community-based setting, individual's home, and start to build almost a database. And, you know, it's different because, of course, everything is virtual this year. But the idea could be we build a database and then we approach a funder to say, these are the types of activities that are happening in X number of places across the country. We would like to dial that up by a factor of 10. We would like to offer these types of programs with trained artists across Canada. Can you help us fund this? And then that can also give us the opportunity to build an evaluation team mm -hmm. to say, what is it like to participate in this? How can we as a country create a, a targeted network to focus on more innovative approaches to aging, right? Moving away from the more medicalized model of care towards dance, or towards music, music therapy, towards creative expression as a way of supporting health and well-being as we age. A lot of countries are doing this. The UK in particular has really, I think it's a place where there is a great opportunity. We have incredible artists in our country and bring that into the aging population. You having the, the backing and the structure of 
Like, I mean, it's quite a nice, obviously, a foundation to, to work from as it gains exposure across the country and such. So, so how do people get involved? So they can absolutely get involved on the Schlegel UWRA website. That's one way. We also have a hashtag because, <laughs> of course, in the world of social media of 2020. So our hashtag is arts and aging CA. So for Canada, all one word, arts and aging CA. And so you can follow that hashtag. We don't put a number on it. So a year so that you can even go back right now today and look at all the different posts that were made in the 2020 iteration of the day. We've used that hashtag now on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. I'm definitely, as you said, I'm very gracious and grateful of the fact that I have people who specialize in communications and social media who can help me with this. Totally. But, uh, but we were actually, yeah, we were really blown away last year at how people, people were getting involved and people were sharing this information. But having that hashtag that's consistent across the platforms really helps to streamline it. So people can go in and find this particular information. Um, the, the college and the RIA will be sharing more information about it as we move forward. And last year, we actually hosted a webinar where we discussed how to get involved. And we're hoping to do the same thing in early September. So a you know free to attend 30-minute webinar of, so you want to get involved in Arts and Aging Day Canada, or you've heard about Arts and Aging Day Canada and you're not really sure if it's for you, let's share a little bit of information and I'll be posting on that webinar a number of the images that were shared with us last year so people can start to get a flavor of what what they could do and what's in store for them on September 24th, 2021. It's amazing when I, I listen to you talk and, you know, just knowing what goes into projects and to pull something of this scale off during the time of COVID with limited resources and to still have the passion that you obviously have to see this grow. And I could see in your eyes the how you're thinking, where it's going to roll in the future. So from a personal point of view, how do you develop and maintain your discipline to stick with it in projects like this? Because as we know, a lot of the times it's people, level of enthusiasm really, yeah, I'm going to do this. They really get into it. And then they start to realize the scale of the project. And, you know, there's many projects that reach a 60 or 80% point that just never carry on. So how, how do you keep that passion for the creativity and develop and maintain that discipline? Well, I think, you know, in terms of my own role, I have such a unique and incredibly exciting role that everything I do within my role is fun. You know, I used to say before before COVID, the worst thing about my job was the commute. And now I don't have a commute. So <laughs> I'm very, very fortunate to have this type of role. I don't know that there are many others like them in Canada. I know that we are the only college-based research institute that focuses on an older population. So one thing that I'm very fortunate to have is access to incredible students. So last year when we started this, we didn't really have any logos or branding because it was quite new. And so this year I had a little bit of extra funds and I hired a student to help me with my logos and branding. And students are wonderful because they are very young and they have a lot more energy than I do. And my student came up with just incredible work and I was really blown away. So that's, you know, sort of a, a small improvement over last year is now we have a little bit more branding and we have a logo that I can use on social media. But I think it's also, so it's the students, it's the team, it's the, it's the idea that, you know, there is really no downside to a day like this. Right. Encouraging people to be more creative and to explore ways in which they can express themselves I think everyone can relate to that. We all want that, don't we? I mean, especially when COVID started, one of the first things you saw was a lot of arts-based organizations jumping into virtual programming, which I think speaks to the fact that people were missing the arts. People wanted in, to access the arts. You know, at Christmas time, we watched The Nutcracker at home in our basement, sort of a different experience. <laughs> um, but, you know, you want to have those touch 
milestones of things that you can appreciate and things that you can enjoy during the year. And I think this comes at a good time, sort of it's the end of summer, people are getting back in, especially within an academic setting, people are getting back into the school year. And it's something nice to look forward to for individuals. Mm -hmm. yeah. What's your big dream for the future? I know that you, you, you laid out the this major project that you have, but what other big areas are you thinking of? Are you focused on? So I think within this particular field of arts, health and aging, our focus has for a very long time been on the older individuals themselves and the benefits of the arts and creativity for an aging population. But personally, I think what the pandemic has shown us is we need to spend more time caring for the caregiver. So here in Canada, we know that a vast majority of care for older adults, especially those individuals living with dementia, is happening at home. It's happening by untrained, unpaid caregivers, family members typically. These individuals need respite. They need support. They need programming that helps them have a little bit of extra time and space in the day to not focus on just the care needs of the individual they're caring for mm -hmm. and to just be them again. And when we look in congregate care settings like retirement or long-term care homes, we see the same thing there. There are incredible, incredibly high rates of burnout, of distress, of just we're hearing all sorts of stories. And none of this is new within the long-term care sector in particular. But it, these difficulties for the caregivers are being amplified due to COVID. Mm -hmm. And so one of many big dreams, Bruce, mm -hmm. but one of my big dreams in this role is to expand our research on the benefits of the arts from the older individuals to those who are providing the care for them. So to actually look at how we can encourage care partners working in particular within long-term care to imbue more creativity and expression into their everyday caregiving activities. And so with my five-year plan moving forward with VRIA, I have this idea of a program where we would actually encourage all staff during the onboarding process into the homes to be able to be more creative. So to learn new techniques, but to also bring their own creativity into work which oftentimes people aren't necessarily encouraged to do, especially if you think of folks, for example, like PSWs who are working in such hard jobs mm -hmm. during the day. It's more so just, you know, trying to provide that care and make sure that your residents are, are seen to. But what about the caregiver? How are we caring for them from a systemic perspective? So that I'm not suggesting necessarily, you know, we have a concert in the middle of the day for everyone. And we just all take a time out from caregiving, although that could be very wonderful. That would be nice, but yeah. That would be actually really nice, wouldn't it? But it's hard to it's hard to change a system like long-term care. But if we were able to actually encourage that creativity and expression a little bit more from us, again, not necessarily, I'm sure people are already doing this on their own. I don't mean to say that this is a new idea, but if we were actually to have systems in place and funds in place to allow for this. That's really a big vision of mine is how can we encourage staff, especially within long-term care, to create more during their days? And that's the big one, especially in this age of massive staff shortages that we're encountering within uh, the care sector and long-term care. It it just creates a, a challenge. So funding has to be applied. And, and, and like you're saying, I think it really thinks to rethink of the role that person plays within the care setting, uh, not just a clinical role, but more of an inclusive uh, creative engagement uh, individual that plays a component of that. It's not like they have to do it at a structured time every day, but how they could work it into the day. And it might be two minutes at one point, or it might be 30 minutes at another point, but thinking of it as a, that tool for change and enhancing the quality of life for, for all involved. So, The work that I was doing before COVID was looking very heavily at calendars, recreation calendars within retirement and long-term care spaces. And obviously that's where a lot of arts-based programming will be noted. But I also think, and I've heard this from staff on the ground, it's not the be-all and end-all of what's happening within the homes. 
you know, I remember I did my postdoc at Baycrest and in one of our atriums, we had a grand piano and you'd frequently see residents, volunteers, people walking by playing the piano. That wasn't on a recreation calendar anywhere, That's right. but everyone could hear it. And it really brought a smile to your face. You know, I would be walking from one building to another and someone would be playing and just, you can't help but be uplifted. When you hear music, you know, rhythm and musicality is quite intrinsic in, in folks. And so hearing it just sort of brings a smile to your face and makes you a little bit lighter as you move through your day. Um, and the work that I've been doing during the pandemic, because of course, a lot of my research has been halted. I've been focusing a lot on the experiences of recreation care professionals within retirement and long-term care homes and the, the incredible resilience and innovation that they've shown in terms of providing programming to people. You know, if you can only do one-on-one -on -one programming because there's an outbreak and residents are confined to their rooms, how do you bring music to people? How do you bring coloring and painting to people? What are you doing? And so I've already seen that people are incredible at stepping up addressing all of the barriers that are facing them, but how can we make this more system-wide? I work in recreation. That's my background. I'm a rec therapist. And I think in a strange sort of way, what COVID has done is it helped us to break sort of the old patterns of behavior, the old structures, the old, like you're saying, at this time this happens, this time this happens, this time this happens, for more of a fluid opportunities for connecting and engaging with others. So... You know, it's, it was a great way, I think, to eliminate some particular programs and the opportunity to bring in a new way to connect with the folks that live within our center. So, Well, it, it is such an interesting time, and I think that's what I'm also very hopeful for. You know, you asked sort of big picture, big ideas. Working with some community partners right now, one of the things that, that I'm really interested in is looking at the lessons we've learned during COVID and how do we make sure we don't lose those if and when we move into that post-pandemic world, you know, as you say, what recreation professionals, what therapeutic recreation staff have been able to do within these settings, how do we make sure we can carry on some of this work? Mm -hmm. In my own research, our intergenerational music therapy intervention, we were actually able to continue it virtually, believe it or not, during COVID. So having small babies on Zoom, nice. Zooming into, the, into one of the villages. And, you know, some of the feedback, not only from the staff within the, the home, but also the parents was this was much easier, right? Mm -hmm. Like you don't have to bundle a baby into their car seat and, oh, they woke up late from their nap and now I'm rushing and I'm, I'll only be there for 20 minutes. So should I bother going or should I just stay home? We had nearly perfect attendance, which rarely ever happens, especially considering we carried out the program from October to December in Ontario, Canada, which is cold <laughs> in that time. That says a lot. No. That says no. a lot. That says a lot. You know, and I think we're right on that beginning edge of how those technologies can work for us. I know that at our site, uh, Zooms became a very popular way to connect families. And it was interesting because a lot of the Zooms will carry on afterwards because we, we will have a resident that lives with us. Their families in Switzerland, they're in Germany and Australia, New Zealand. So we can still have these weekly communications that didn't really occur and we didn't spend a lot of focus on before. Uh, and Zoom has really enabled that. And yes, and also for programming too. And we know that from some of our community partners, we know that older adults themselves are asking for this. Mm -hmm. They're asking for that hybrid opportunity. So, you know, think of Ontario in February is not a wonderful place if you're driving. Exactly. And you have mobility challenges and you have to get out of the car and find the parking meter and then walk to the building. Maybe you're using a mobility device. You're afraid of slipping on the ice. We have a lot of people who say, you know, we're not coming out to programming because of the weather. And so absolutely, we do want to encourage people to gather again in person. You had mentioned that earlier. Will there be in-person opportunities? We need that mm -hmm. in our society. But if there was an opportunity, if you know, or even if you have a cold one day, and we don't want you coming in, but we, want, we don't want you to miss out on the programming, maybe there's an opportunity there to offer some sort of in-between as well. Yeah, and the beauty of it, too, and the one thing I've noticed, for example... Gary Glazner with the Alzheimer's Poetry Project out of Brooklyn. Gary's a really dynamic poet and creative engagement specialist. And 
So we've been able to do sessions with Gary live from Gary and, you know, he's in New York. Our residents just loving it. And the level of engagement between Gary in New York and us in Gibson's connecting back and forth in the poetry creation process is as good as if he was in the room. It's true. I mean, we're working with one community partner right now that's based out of Toronto, and a lot of the performers of their concerts just happen to be from Ottawa. And I asked the the director one day, is is there something, I mean, is there something about Ottawa? <laughs> There's just so many musicians there. And they said, well, you know what? In sort of the before times, we probably couldn't have got those musicians because we wouldn't have necessarily been able to financially support them to come all the way to Toronto, put them up, have them do the performance. But having it, they're using sync space as well, which is an incredible technology where you can have musicians from different places and everything's integrated. So they've sort of been forced due to COVID to use these new technologies, but now they're actually being able to open their participants up to experiences that probably they wouldn't necessarily have had in the first place. So, you know, you don't want to lose that as well, this opportunity to reach out to a whole new group of people, as you're saying. I mean, New York is a little bit more exciting, I guess, <laughs> than Toronto to Ottawa. Uh, yeah, but, but still, it's yeah. the, you know, it's the the artist, the musician, the performer. And giving them the opportunity to connect with, you know, in this particular case, with older individuals that they, again, living in Ottawa, probably wouldn't have the opportunity to connect with and being asked questions about their their art and about their instruments and having to connect with a whole new group of people. It, it's very bi-directional benef- you know, benefits for both the, the participants and the performers themselves. You were interviewing myself and a couple of my team members from Raising the Curtain Project. And when you were interviewing me, I was thinking, how, how have our paths never crossed before? Uh, the work that you were doing and the work that we're doing on the West Coast. And I was thinking, like, we didn't know each other, right? And it really speaks to the bigger question that there are people out there doing amazing work all around the globe in this in this field. How do you feel we could get connected as a community of creatives? Mm. That's a great question. I mean, I think... I'll toot my own horn, but something like a nationwide social media initiative is a great place to start because that's how I met you Mm -hmm. through the editor of Dementia Connections. He said, you need to talk to my friends here in BC, but you're right. It's sort of a very piecemeal way of connecting. And there, there are large scale international organizations for other things within the field of aging. Right. So even here in Canada, we have like the CCNA, which is a consortium for neurodegeneration and aging. I think what we need to do and don't really have a solution for this yet. But again, that big picture is start this grassroots connection. So how do we come together? Maybe at first it's just once a year. Maybe then we create a database. Maybe there's a listserv. Maybe there's, you know, a a once a year meeting but start to form these these connections and have a way to maybe even collaborate with each other. Because again, a lot of the work within this field, you need funding for it. That's the truth of the matter for much of even my own work. I do need to, to source external funding for my research. But try and create some sort of network whereby there is an opportunity for us to connect a little bit more. You know, maybe it's a monthly newsletter where we just put in a short blurb of, did you know so-and-so is doing this? And then when there is a grant opportunity or there is some sort of conference coming up, it's easier for us to figure out who to connect with and how. Because I'm still very new to my role and I did not come from the arts field. I came from much more clinical medical field. And so I'm still finding my way. And, you know, people such as yourself who have such incredible connections now that I found you, Mm -hmm. (laughs) we can build on those connections, but it's all very, it's, it's still, it's still growing. It's a tiny little snowball. It's slowly starting to grow. It has great potential. There's been a lot of growth in the last couple of years and a lot more visibility of the individuals working around the globe. So it's just a matter of mm-hmm. finding a way to pull it together that works functional. And there's nice now because there's new tools like the, you know, digital online communities that are building up around different um, ideas and concepts. Personally, I feel it would really work well in a digital online community 
where there's that sharing and interaction and workshops and education and performance, whatever it may be. So, mm-hmm. Well, because now with COVID, so many organizations have figured out how to do online conferences, for example, right? So is there, there, there's a lot of people working within this space who are not in an academic background. And so that's something I encounter even with my colleagues in the UK is, you know, sure, there are conferences, but conferences have registration fees. And so a lot of people who don't necessarily have funding, you know, grant funding to go to conferences, or maybe their organization doesn't have a lot of money to send them to conferences, they don't go. So then we don't find each other and we don't see each other's work. But now that there are opportunities, as you're saying, for low cost or no cost digital connections Mm -hmm. that we've been forced into during COVID, what an opportunity for us going forward to see if this is a way for us to stay connected. You know, in the US, they do have more formalized creative aging conferences and things like that. We don't really have anything like that in Canada. We don't even have in our own Canadian Association on Gerontology, for example, there's no special interest group on creative aging. I joined the British Society of Gerontology Special Interest Group in Creative Aging because at least then I can connect with people internationally that way. But even something like that, we're in here in Canada, in folks interested in the aging process, you know, I think those of us working within the creative space, we need to come together to be a bit more vocal and noticeable. Thank you so much for your support. If you like the show and you'd like to see it grow, tell a friend or give a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really, really helps. Or even better, you could send the show link to a friend who you think would love it and benefit from the discussions. Until next time, be well. Oh, hey, I almost forgot. Remember to check the show notes and you will find the links to the website. Uh, all the organizations that Kate was talking about, and the Arts and Aging Day Canada. It's a great new website that is up, and the hashtag link. So that's all in the show notes. Thanks again.